Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to thepetecalendarshow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. Yeah, the Murdoch trial is uh, is wrapping up. Uh, apparently, uh, Matt Harris sent me a text saying that the common belief in the courtroom is that uh, the closing arguments will be done by today. Uh I would be interested to see that actually happen. They they started probably about uh, probably about an hour ago, less than an hour ago, and um, we're, so I've I've not been able to listen because this morning the jury went on the the trip to Moselle to look at the hunting property. But uh, so there's no there was no audio, there was no testimony. Yesterday was just a little bit of cleanup uh, and back and forth with the state bringing some more experts to counter the defense experts, and that that's always the case with these cases where it's the battle of the experts. And a lot of times that just, that stuff just kind of comes out in the wash. Um, but they balance each other out, I would say. So like, it, I, I don't think a lot of times the expert opinions, when you have conflicting expert opinions, the jurors tend to kind of default to whatever other evidence or positions they held prior. So uh, I don't know if it moved, I don't know if any of them moved the needle, so to speak. So anyway, so they're doing the closing arguments, and uh, we'll do the recap tomorrow, and then the, we'll be waiting on a verdict to come in. So uh, let me go here, though, because um, the long march through the institutions of the the postmodernist left, um, going on for decades, they've captured many of the, mo- if not most, uh, or all of the... Uh, these institutions in our society, you know, from from media to education to uh, entertainment, they've captured it. And for the most part, they have. And so this long march through the institutions in order to change the culture, right? This is a cultural Marxist movement. And uh, that's what the critical race theory stuff and uh, radical gender theory, that's what these are all tied to, this intersectionality concept, right, by Kimberly Crenshaw. That This is where it comes from. So it's good to note when some of the most destructive elements of that march suffer defeats and the most, I, in my view, one of the most, if not the most destructive is this push on uh, transgenderism and gender ideology. And again, standard disclaimer, I don't deny that people suffer from gender dysphoria. I don't deny that. People suffer from all sorts of dysphoric conditions. And I don't know what that must be like. It must be awful to be, you know, have one idea in your brain and your brain is telling you something all the time. I've equated it to anorexia or bulimia. I forget which one is which, but you know, this, they have this self image, this perception that they are obese and they are not. And so they literally kill themselves through starvation or uh, purging because their mind is telling them something that is not true. And they want to be something else 
And uh, there are trans-ableists as well. There are people who um, believe themselves to be uh, maimed in some way when they are not. And so they then maim themselves in order to align the brain with their physical body. And so I have empathy for people that are going through this. I can't imagine how difficult it is. But I also recognize that there is, in fact, a... Uh, there is an environmental influence it's, and you're and people are being exposed to these ideas and they're being coaxed into uh into these choices by people who may have ulterior motives now we've got a uh report by the british medical journal the endocrine society commissioned two Systematic reviews for its clinical practice guideline. Right? So this is, like, this is, BMJ has credibility. Right? And these reviews were then used in order to send out to the clinicians, here are the guidelines based on our studies. One of the effects of sex steroids on lipids and cardiovascular outcomes. That was one of the reports. And the other one looked at the effects of sex steroids on bone health. And the BMJ, the Endocrine Society Commission reports, judged the quality of evidence for all recommendations on adolescents as low or very low. Low quality of evidence or very low. Right? So they're saying, probably don't want to recommend this. As a guideline, probably don't want to do this. The report goes on to cite several systematic reviews of the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. This is WPATH, or WPATH, and their sex change recommendations. One of the commission's system, uh, systematic reviews found that the strength of evidence for the conclusions that hormonal treatment may improve quality of life, depression, and anxiety among transgender people was low. It was low. The strength of the evidence is low. And it emphasized need more research, especially among adolescents. The reviewers also concluded that it was impossible to draw conclusions about the effects of hormone therapy on death by suicide. Impossible to draw conclusions about the effects of hormone therapy on suicides. That is the reason parents go along with the therapies. Because they are told that if you don't let your child transition, they're probably going to kill themselves. And parents love their children and do not want them to kill themselves. And so they get essentially guilted or extorted into going along with it. And it is impossible to draw conclusions about the effects of hormone therapy on suicides. There, it, it's been a lie. WPATH has even admitted that the evidence supporting medical transition is so limited that a systematic review regarding outcomes of treatment in adolescence is not possible. 
This is what their their review says. It's impossible because we don't have enough evidence supporting medical transition, yet it's public guidance says the opposite. It's publicly telling parents and kids and, and uh, clinicians, they're not, they're not expressing any kind of uncertainty about the science. WPATH actually advises that the rate of regret of gender-affirming medical treatment commenced in adolescence has been observed to be very low, and the benefits of treatment in adolescence are potentially greater than the benefits of gender-affirming treatment commenced in adulthood. So the harms associated with delaying access to these uh, treatments, quote-unquote, for the majority appear greater than the risk of regret for the few. They're literally arguing that, well, for most of them, it seems like this is a good thing, and that outweighs the negatives where the people transition, they have all these surgeries, and they have all the hormones, and it affects their lives forever, and uh, they then regret that. And there are some of those, yes, but there are way more that are like, yes, I'm glad I got this. Yet their own their own systematic review says something else. The supposed benefits that they're referring to are not reflected in the scientific data. In fact, one of the studies claiming to show a connection between better mental health and social and physical affirmation had to be publicly revised to clarify that there's no such connection. So their big top-line finding... We found a connection. Upon further review, there's no connection. Every single other conclusive study on this topic has found that the evidence in support of gender-affirming care is at very best inconclusive. That's the best you've got. It's inconclusive. Is this going to be like the masks? Is this going to be like all of the misinformation on the COVID front? Except now you've chopped up people's bodies? Washington Examiner, headline, the scientific revolt against gender ideology has begun. They talk about uh, several of these systematic reviews, one done by the Endocrine Society, uh, another by the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. Uh, They also talk here about Florida's Agency for Healthcare Administration, a review from them on the outcomes that are, quote, important to patients with gender dysphoria, including mental health, quality of life, and complications, found that the body of evidence from the 61 systematic reviews that they looked at, 61 reviews they reviewed, and the body of evidence is not sufficient to support puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, or surgeries in young people. Then there is the chief of adolescent medicine at Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago, a fellow by the name of Robert Garofalo. He says, quote, it is a discipline where the evidence base is now being assembled. It's truly lagging behind clinical practice in some ways. The research is lagging behind clinical practice. Is that ideal? What is that saying? Sounds like we're running experiments and we're collecting the evidence from these experiments. No. Now, um, this is from uh, Kaylee McGee-White. She is the editor for the Washington Examiner and a a senior fellow at the Independent Women's Forum. And she says, to be clear, 
gender activists don't really care whether the science backs up their agenda or not. Okay? It doesn't, the science doesn't matter to them. But it does give them a claim to authority when they debate this issue. Right? Just like I mentioned earlier with the, uh, the extortion, the threat. Oh, you, you better go along with this because if you don't, your kid's going to kill themselves. Right? Yeah, that's, that's not true either. But they don't care about the science. It's the agenda. But we need to know the science because debunking the bogus scientific claims helps to break the ideological grip. Because without this pseudo-scientific explanation going on, there isn't a moral authority. There isn't a, any kind of a an, in debate or in, in negotiations. It's the appeal to the higher authority. And there isn't that's they cannot do that here. Also, John Sexton at HotAir.com writing. Uh, this was yesterday, actually. A teacher at an elementary school on Long Island. Uh, well, there's your first problem, John. It's on Long Island. It's not in Long Island. It's on Long Island. I could say that. I know. I was I was born on Long Island. Okay. A teacher at an elementary school on Long Island is accused of pressuring a nine-year-old to question her gender identity and sexuality to the point that she was openly discussing suicide. Her parents have now sued the school district and the teacher, claiming that she pressured their daughter towards a trans identity as a boy. The teacher is a fifth-grade teacher at Terryville Road Elementary School. It's in Port Jeff Station. Her name is Deborah Rosenquist. And uh, she started calling the nine-year-old child Leo and using opposite gender pronouns towards the beginning of the 21-22 school year. The parents said that they were uh, they had no idea this was happening, and they only found out in January 2022, so after like half of the school year, when the principal called them, telling them that their daughter had drawn a picture of a girl and then wrote next to it, I want to kill myself. I feel sad like a lot. And when they saw that, the principal had to tell the parents. And the principal informed the parents at that time that their daughter had even met with the school psychologist telling the mental health worker that she was, quote, confused about her gender identity. Tell me again why we don't need a uh, parent's bill of rights in North Carolina. Why again? This isn't happening. If you are trying to hide this stuff from parents, you are the wrong person. You are doing bad things. Just like, again, just they do the same thing with this debate on the parents' bill of rights. Well, we, we have to keep it hidden from the parents, from all parents, because they may not get affirmation, right? Everything, this is the linchpin. This is this affirmation linchpin. And it's all based on this science, quote unquote, that they cite that, oh, if you don't affirm, then you have worse outcomes. And it's not backed by actual evidence. This is the linchpin upon which their argument fails. Their political agenda fails. Despite Rosenquist, who is 62, having referred to the student for months as Leo, it was only during this late January call with the parents when they were asked for the first time if this name was okay. They had no idea it was happening. 
Rosenquist pursued her own agenda outside the curriculum, which included persuading her fifth grade students to, quote, try being gay or being another gender, even when you're not. She did this for the whole class. To further her agenda, Rosenquist read and provided her students graphic books about gender and sexuality, which were not on the curriculum. The district admitted in a meeting with the parents, quote, they had no idea Rosenquist taught from a book about LGBTQ plus individuals that was not part of the curriculum. This is why we need the laws. Look, I didn't think we would get to a point where we needed these kinds of laws either. But here we are. And it wasn't the righties that brought us here. All right. Are you prepared for a disaster? Do you need some advice? Are you looking for a military surplus that's real? Well, for more than three decades, the answer has been Old Grouch's Military Surplus in downtown Clyde. It is an old school traditional store. It's got a mix of modern and vintage items. See my friend Tim. He'll hook you up. He gets new stuff in all the time. American made because it's real military surplus. Camo, shirts, hats, customized dog tags, gear, Old Grouches on Main Street, downtown Clyde, across the street from the anti-aircraft gun. The shop is open Monday through Saturday and all the time at oldgrouch.com. So I got a message here on uh, Twitter from App Patriot Girl who says, What I want to know is, was the teacher fired? Would you like to take a guess? This is New York. Do you know how hard it is to fire a teacher in New York? According to the lawsuit, the school administrators, so at the school level, they knew what she was doing, but did nothing to stop it. Superintendent Jennifer J. Quinn and the school's principal, Anne-Marie Schiovi, both admitted to the parents in a meeting in February that they knew Rosenquist was peddling this mentality in the classroom, according to the lawsuit filed by the parents. After they complained, their daughter was removed from the class She then got bullied in her new class. Meanwhile, Rosenquist has been moved to a first-grade classroom where she can't do any kind of similar damage. For those who think Florida's parental rights and education bill was a terrible idea, this is why it's necessary, because without it, some bored 62-year-old who wants to play culture war politics with other people's kids It's going to do something like this, and the administration's going to wink and ignore it. And parents will have no recourse. You're going to be held accountable for what you do to other people's kids that are under your care and supervision for six hours a day. They're not your kids. I feel the need to keep saying this because I hear teachers talk about this all the time. They talk about my kids, and I understand. Like, most of them just say my kids because it's my class, right? They're my students, whatever. But I think there are some, there are some like this woman in Long Island, on Long Island. She's saying it, like these are my kids. No, they're not yours. You don't get to do this to other people's children, in service to the cause. Then there's this story: in a growing backlash against woke culture, the board of the University of North Carolina has moved to ban. DEI requirements from its hiring and promotion process. DEI is diversity, equity, and inclusion. The school's Board of Governors voted to ban DEI statements from hiring and tenure decisions. The Chapel Hill-based uh, school neither shall or shall neither solicit 
nor require an employee or applicant for academic admission or employment to affirmatively ascribe to or opine about beliefs, affiliations, ideals, or principles regarding matters of contemporary political debate or social action as a condition to admission, employment, or professional advancement. Because they were having people sign DEI statements. A nonprofit that's been advocating for an end to these requirements took credit for the move. It's called Color Us United. The president of this group is Kenny Zhu, I guess. X-U, Kenny Zhu. And he said his group has been behind the push. Earlier this month, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis announced an initiative to ban DEI from state-funded schools as well. The board uh, unanimously approved a policy that prevents any of its schools from asking applicants about personal political beliefs when they apply for admission or employment. The board, this was unanimous. The board backed the change to its policy manual without discussion and by unanimous vote, but it's not clear. It's the Charlotte Observer. It's not clear that any campuses in the UNC system are doing what is now prohibited. Right? So think about what that sentence just says. It's not clear that any campuses are doing these DEI statements. Okay. The very next sentence. Until recently, NC State University had included a question on its undergrad application (laughs) that says, NC State University is committed to building a just and inclusive community, one that does not tolerate unjust or inhumane treatment, and that denounces it clearly and loudly. Please describe what those words mean to you and how you will contribute to a more diverse and inclusive NC State environment. What did I just read here? You you literally just... From one set, it's one sentence. One sentence. It's not clear that any campuses are doing this. And then you give me an example of a campus that's doing it. It literally is the sentence. Mick Kulikowski, spokesman for the university, confirmed on Wednesday that the question will not be required going forward. So we have no evidence that these types of questions are being implemented or used anywhere on any campus, and then you tell me about a question that is being used on a campus and how they're not going to do it anymore just as they pass this new ban on the sentence that you said doesn't exist that they're using. Which is it? Which is it, Observer, yes or no? Is it, in, is it being used or not? Because it seems like it's being used, and it seems like now they have to stop doing it because it seems like they were using it, according to your own report. Last month, the UNC System Board Committee began considering a policy that would bar questions requiring applicants to affirmatively ascribe to or opine about beliefs and affiliations and ideals and blah, blah, blah. That's good news. Good news. And then there was this by a guy named Curtis Yarvin. Have you been following what's been going on down in uh, Florida with the new college where DeSantis had the opportunity to appoint like a majority on the, the 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 new college board of directors. That's the name of the college called the new college or new college. And um, I don't know if there's an old one. I don't, I, I'm not sure. Or if there's like an old building on the new college campus or something, I don't know how you would dif- differentiate. There's a lot of practical questions. You'd think they'd change the name, but regardless, he got to make a majority of appointments for some reason or another. And he put Chris Rufo, who's been, you know, leading this, 
war against wokeism, and he put Chris Rufo onto the board along with like-minded conservatives. And anyway, so there's been this fight going on, and um, there's a a guy he writes at uh, Substack. The name of it's called Gray Mirror, and his name is Curtis Yarvin. And uh, he wrote about this, and he was he apparently is a conservative, but. Chris Rufo said that he's defeatist. He's too pessimistic here about the prospects for the future. And it's a very lengthy piece. I'm not going to read the whole thing, obviously, because it's very lengthy. I'd try to just give you the highlights here. But the name of the piece is called Acorns for the Culture War and has to do with some, he makes this, he tells this parable of the tree that falls down. They try to plant it by cutting off the tree and sticking it in the hole, but you got to plant acorns, but whatever. Doesn't matter. He first starts off with this quote from Robert Louis Dabney, who was like, Stonewall Jackson's autobiography or Stonewall Jackson's biographer, and he's a Confederate uh, soldier. This guy said 150 years ago, conservatism is a party which never conserves anything. Its history has been that it demurs to each aggression of the progressive party and aims to save its credit by a respectable amount of growling, but always acquiesces at last in the innovation. What's he what's he describing there? Right, conservatives are like belly aching. No, no, this is bad. This is bad. Uh, but eventually, right, they acquiesce. What was the resisted novelty of yesterday is today one of the accepted principles of conservatism. It is now conservative only in effecting to resist the next innovation, which will tomorrow be forced upon its timidity and will be succeeded by some third revolution to be denounced and then adopted. American conservatism is merely the shadow that follows radicalism as it moves forward towards perdition. Right? This is the same argument we hear right now. This is the rhinos versus true conservatives, right? This is the same kind of debate. Kurt Schlichter was talking about it the other day in the town hall column about, you know, red state Republicans going soft like this. You know, this is why people like Trump. He fights, he fights, right? So that's what Rufo is going to respond to, this idea that... Um, that this is not, this is not the fight to have, and it's not going to be successful. And Rufo is like, no, we can be successful, but even if we're not, we still need to fight. Curtis Yarvin writes: 150 years later, the objective function of publicity stunt conservatism is unchanged. When Governor Ron DeSantis spends a million dollars to fly 50 Venezuelans from Texas via Florida to Martha's Vineyard, what is the objective impact of this action? As a fundraising and general lead generation media op for the governor, fine work. Perhaps it raised $10 million. Very impactful. Good job. However, uh, on the progressive party, which is in power, uh, the impacts on it are going to be more powerful. This impact is wholly positive for them. The institutions, which claim political ownership of the richest and the smartest people in America, well, they have their own fundraising needs, right? Everybody, even the rich, thin, beautiful people, have to eat. Everybody's got to eat. The New York Times needs subscribers. ACLU needs donors, etc., etc. All these institutions need to exercise their supporters. They need a basically harmless, fake enemy to posture at them. Maybe even roughhouse a little bit. So that little old ladies who wouldn't hurt a fly keep taking fright and sending them checks. In other words, they need a heel. They need a heel. And this is what he is accusing DeSantis of doing. 
And so this is the latest one with this new college. The DeSantis administration realizes the governor gets to appoint a majority of the board on this, well, he calls a poop tier, a poopy tier, uh, Florida Public Hippie College, new college. And so he does so. And what does the new board intend to do with this trembling, fresh-caught bird still reeking of patchouli? Well, they're going to make it into like a Hillsdale College. But he says, think of it this way, though. Imagine you wanted to start a, a new institution like this. Like, it's truly needed. You want to start this college. The last thing you'd want on your campus is a bunch of old hippie professors and shaggy midwit stoner students, right? If you had to start with new college, you would instantly realize that all you want to keep is the land and the buildings, <laughs> right? So, but you're tussling with the libs. This is what he says. This is all... This is all performative. You would do exactly what is being done. You constantly irritate them in a way that gives them the oxygen they need, makes you look like Ferris Bueller's principal, and cannot in any way cause more than negligible damage to liberalism as a whole. And for this, millions of human beings pour out their hearts, or at least their votes. The poor donors, they're being skinned. This is what he says. Now, Christopher Rufo who was appointed to the board at New College, he has a, oops, sorry, he has a response. And he says, Yarvin has published a friendly critique of our campaign to transform New College. He understands the difficulties of the task ahead, but he's far too pessimistic about the prospects of the future, and here's why. His basic theme is that the progressive managerial state, or cathedral, is so powerful that any action to challenge it will end up reinforcing its power. This is right-wing doomerism. We're just doomed. If the beast is all-powerful, better to adopt the position of a prey animal and do nothing. And I'm with Rufo on this. I, I disagree. Even if we accept Yarvin's premise of inevitable failure, and I don't, Rufo doesn't, he should remember the words of Leo Strauss, who in a critique of Burke counseled that even against immense odds, there is nobility and there is utility to last-ditch resistance. Resistance in a forlorn position, he said. Going down with guns blazing, flags flying, may contribute greatly towards keeping awake the recollection of the immense loss sustained by mankind. It may inspire and strengthen the desire and the hope for its recovery. And it may even become a beacon for those who humbly carry on the works of humanity in a seemingly endless valley of darkness and destruction. Right? This is, remember the Alamo, right? Now, Rufo says he's way more optimistic. He says the takeover of the college has already changed the dynamics in higher education. We have a strong new president. He says you're going to see changes within the next 120 days. They're going to shut down low-performing, ideologically captured academic departments. Right? But he says, like, this is it. We're, we're taking the fight to them, and if we go down with the ship, maybe we serve as a model for others and an inspiration for others. And I'm with Rufo on that. I'll see you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.